0: 1 Kings chapter 8, 1 to 30, and then we'll jump to verse 54. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites, brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, who had assembled before him, were with him before the ark, Sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant to the, of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary but they could not be seen from the outside. And there, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord Filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned round and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood, and he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in place of David, my father, and I sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel." And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hands you have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your words be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And jumping forward to verse 54. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with hands outstretched towards heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed, all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses' servant." The Lord our God be with us, as he was with our fathers. Amen. Roger.
1: Um, I'm aware some of us, especially during the summer, some of us may not have been here for the rest of the series we've been working through on Sunday evenings, but this is a series on prayer. We're thinking about prayer. And we've been learning to pray by watching some of God's kings pray. So we've had two weeks on the great King David, uh, now tonight King Solomon, and then next week it will be King Jesus with the Lord's Prayer. Actually, whether it is your first time in church or your 500th time here, I guess we all might want some help with prayer. I think it can be one of the puzzling things if you're looking in on Christianity, kind of, what do these people think they're doing when they're praying? Are they actually praying to anyone? Could I pray? How would I? But likewise, if we've been Christians a long time, well, how's your prayer life? It's always a nerve-wracking question. How's your prayer life been in the summer? Extra time? Has that meant extra depths of prayer? Extra breadth of prayer? More time dwelling in prayer? Or like me and a few I've spoken to over the last few days, has it been that changes of routine, changes of rhythm actually made it harder to even maintain our kind of normal level of prayer? Well, however it's been, I'm hoping tonight will be a real kind of shot in the arm for us in our prayer lives, a real spur uh, to get going again if we've stopped or to persevere uh, in, in growing in prayer. Prayer is a battle. We thought about that this morning. Literally, it's a battle, a spiritual battle that's going on. We need all the help we can get. That's why Tuesday nights we do have this monthly prayer meeting. This Tuesday would be a great time to come. If you're someone like me, where when you pray solo, you you run out of steam after a while. It's a wonderful thing to come with other Christians who can keep the momentum going. So come on Tuesday. That's one way of being helped. But of course, the other way to be helped in prayer is through God's word the sword of the Spirit. And so we're going to look now at the prayer in 1 Kings 8 and learn from it. So let me pray as we turn to God's word. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that as we look at how Solomon led your people in prayer, you would lead us to know more and more the kind of prayer that you delight in. And we do pray very practically that the fruit of tonight would be more prayer. Prayer filled with greater humility about ourselves and greater confidence about you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I've said, our, our topic tonight is kind of ordinary, regular Christian prayer. And we're going to learn from the example of Solomon and the prayer that he prayed on the day when the Temple of Jerusalem first opens, which on first sight I think might be a slightly odd thing to be doing. So he's a king, and we're just kind of ordinary punters. And this was a unique day, a really, really special day, one of the greatest days, if not the greatest, in Old Testament Israel's history. I don't know if you noticed that, and it will help to have your Bibles open again. Page 287, chapter 8, verse 1. On this day, the entire nation gathered. I mean, that is a prayer meeting attendance. And they're all standing up. Such a big moment as the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing God's presence, comes uh, into Jerusalem and the temple. I mean, all of that sounds a long way from kind of bowing your head over your cereal bowl tomorrow morning. It was a day, verse 5, when there were so many sacrifices going on that they couldn't be counted. Someone tries actually, later in the chapter, verse 63, there's an estimate of how many animals died. 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. It feels like a long way from just kneeling at the side of your bed tonight or while you're lying in bed and praying. This was the day, verse 10, if you look down, where God's glory cloud came down to fill the temples so Powerfully, so visibly and tangibly that people couldn't actually enter the building. That feels a long way from maybe stepping out of the office one lunchtime this week, having a short walk around the block to pray for your godliness at work or your colleagues around you. It's just very obviously an extraordinary day, an amazing day, a one-off day. So why would we take this kind of royal prayer on a unique day, as typical pattern, a kind of model for us, ordinary Christian prayer. Well, here's the thing. This book of one Kings, it wasn't written for kings to read. It was written for ordinary people to read. And it wasn't written for people who were still living through the highs of Israel's history, the special days, but for people who were stuck in the rubbish days, in exile, and the days after. The readers were living in a kind of post-faith world where that wonderful kingdom of God that they had heard about in the past had been dismantled around them. I wonder if any of that feels familiar at the moment in the West. It can sometimes feel like everything's falling apart, Christianly. It can seem like confidence in the God of the Bible is at a record low, And this book is written for ordinary members of God's people, ordinary believers, to remind them, to remind us that there is hope. There is something solid to cling to, even in the dark days. And the hope that the whole of the book and this particular prayer kind of focuses us in on is the God who keeps promises. If you forget everything else I say, remember that. This prayer focuses us in on the God who keeps his promises, which makes it worth praying whatever's going on around us. I've got three, you'll see there's an outline on the back of the service sheet. I've got three kind of big things to learn from Solomon about how to pray, why it's worth praying to this God who keeps his promises. We're going to think about glad praise of God, that's how he starts, bold requests to God, And then we'll get to a humble appeal to God. First off then, it really is worth praying in glad praise of God for keeping his specific words of promise. Why should we gladly praise God in our prayer lives? Because he keeps his specific words of promise. Now this is a long chapter, we're not going to look at everything in it in detail But I want us just to notice where Solomon's prayer starts in verse 15 and then where he ends in verse 56. We'll look at the top and the tail. Read yourself actually, verse 15 and verse 56. See if you notice anything. Verse 15, verse 56. In both verses, Solomon is praising God as the one who keeps his promises and as the one who keeps very specific words of promise. It's striking that, this, this prayer, this worship, is not just the kind of general sense that God is faithful. That's a wonderful thing, wonderful thing to rejoice in, his character. But this prayer is referring to specific words, specific promises God has made. is praising God for proving faithful in practice, on the ground. So verse 15, Solomon said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying. And verse 56, similar. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses his servant. You see the point, it's not just faithful one so unchanging, though that's true, it's a great song, but very specifically, praise you for that precise promise in 2 Samuel 7. We had that two weeks ago. The promise made to David. Or praise you for that particular promise to Moses in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that we come into this land. In other words, Solomon is praying with his Bible open. He's got the sword of the Spirit actually in his hand as he prays or in his heart if he's memorised it. He looks at what God has said will happen and then he looks at what's happening around him and he recognises where God is delivering on his words. Of course, this is one of the things that does distinguish the real God, the God of the Bible, from all the man-made idols that are around us, the, the claimants to be God's. If you were here for Isaiah last year, we saw that repeatedly, that the unique real God can announce the future before it happens. And not the kind of, you know, the kind of uh, fortune cookie or horoscope predictions, but they're so vague, they're so kind of endlessly malleable that really they could mean anything by a couple of years' time. No, God makes specific space-time predictions and carries them out. And Solomon... Love that about him. Verse 23. O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. Listen to this. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you fulfilled it this day. Don't you love that about our God? He actually delivers on his words. He can't break a promise. He won't break a promise. He's the God who's not all talk. It's striking that language. It's there in 15 and 24. You spoke with your mouth and your hand fulfilled it. Now, of course, God the Father doesn't actually have a hand or a mouth. But the point of the imagery is he's not all talk. He's not all words but no action, not all promises with no reality. And that is a hugely, hugely refreshing thing today. I don't know about you, but I am weary of hearing soundbites and rhetoric in our political sphere that just can't happen, won't happen doesn't happen. Sometimes, like with Theresa May, there's a a dutiful attempt to, to try their utmost, to deliver on their words. But her hand wasn't strong enough politically. Others, and this is from all sides of this political spectrum, are throwing out promises and predictions that just can't actually all be fulfilled. Sometimes they're doing that knowingly. It's deeply wearying, I think, if you have a lot of that. It's worrying because you can't actually trust what people say. But it's not just them. Sometimes we can't even fulfill our own promises. But there is a God in heaven, someone like no other in heaven above or on earth beneath, who actually delivers. Not vaguely, not with a load of kind of spin and waffle and uh, kind of changing the plan along the way. No, he says he'll do something and he does it. verses um, 16 to 21, explain in detail the particular promise from the Bible that Solomon's thinking of. So he is thinking of that sermon from two weeks ago, 2 Samuel 7, you can read it afterwards if you want to. 2 Samuel 7, where God says, through Nathan the prophet, that David's not going to build a temple for God, but the son of David will, i.e. Solomon, and he'll be king. And so here we are. Hundreds of tons of cut stones, expensive jewels, gold lining, finest wood, decades of peace to enable it, a whole heap of construction later. And David's son Solomon has built a temple for the name of the Lord. So verse 20, now the Lord has fulfilled the promise that he made. For I've risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Tick. (laughs) He did it. And what's the general lesson for our prayers? Well, gladly praise God for keeping his specific words of promises. Or to put it another way, actually take notice when God delivers on his words and praise him for it. I've started to try to grow in this myself over the summer. Actually, I think the first challenge it, it throws up when you do try and put this into practice is, is realising actually how well do I know what God has specifically promised? Do I know what he's promised for this particular stage of salvation history? How much am I filling my mind and my memory with Bible truth? Not just for information's sake or to look impressive, but so that I can then think through the promises that God has kept and praise Him for it. How much of the Old Testament has already been fulfilled at Jesus' first coming? Do we ever stop and think and praise Him for it? It can. It's useful doing that on the kind of big picture stuff. These big promises about God's kingdom. It's also useful doing it in promises for daily life. We've been given a lot of promises about daily life. Surely I will never leave you or forsake you, even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Or as we thought about with our Genesis series recently with Joseph, the sovereign God does promise to work through all things, even the worst things, for the good of those who love him. And so if you're a Christian still standing, whatever you've been through, well then God has kept his specific promise to you. Jesus has been delivering on his specific promise not to let anyone snatch you out of his hands. So, praise God, gladly. Circumstances may still be tough, morale may still be low, but actually our God's track record of delivering with his hand exactly what he said with his mouth, is still growing. And the more we pause to reflect on it, well, the more our confidence in his ongoing care will grow. So it turns out it's not just theologians and Bible geeks who need to know what God's actually said in here, what the Old Testament says. It's what can grow our trust and confidence in the God who answers prayers. On the flip side of that, and this is an important warning, it's why it's so important for us not to put words into God's mouth, which he hasn't actually said in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the pastoral damage that comes when people do that. When people are given words from the Lord that aren't promises in the Bible, here are some I've come across, you will definitely be able to have children or have the other child you long for, because God's for you. Your loved one will definitely be healed if you just have enough faith and pray. If you give to church, you will experience ever-growing financial prosperity yourself. That kind of thing can shipwreck people, because rather than producing this this ever-growing confidence, this glad praise, because my Heavenly Father delivers on what he says, well, actually when grim reality cuts through the promise, the fake promise, well, we assume it's God not keeping his word. We assume he can't be trusted. Maybe he's not even there, or if he is, he's mean. He's holding out on us. Solomon is keeping his Bible open while he prays, and he's praising God for for fulfilling his specific words. That's point one. Secondly, though, point two, off the back of that kind of glad confidence in God's ability to deliver in the past, well, Solomon continues to to pray, to make bold requests to God to keep doing what he's previously promised. This is point two, make bold requests to God to do what he's previously promised. Again, this, this is flowing straight out of Solomon's Bible study in 2 Samuel 7. And um, we saw this, this two weeks ago that, that God both promised that David's son would build the temple. Tick. We've seen that. He also promised that there would be a king from David's family on the throne forever, going forwards forever. And that's a kind of ongoing TBC. Still needs to be completed. And so Solomon prays that in boldly, verse 25. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you've promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you've walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed which, you spoke, which you've spoken to your servant David my father. In verses 25 and 26, notice that there are two "therefores." they're both both important. The first one, verse 24, is because of our first point. Given you've shown yourself to be a promise keeper, therefore, I'm going to pray about something else you've promised. And then verse 26. Given you said that the throne of Israel will be occupied by a son of David, therefore, please get on and do it. Do you see that connection? Because you've said it, and because you're a God who keeps what he said, therefore I'm praying this. That's what gives Solomon boldness to pray the prayer. Because he's practised praying like point one, he's able to pray like point two. And I guess a good prayer MOT if you're a Christian here is to say how much does this style of praying characterise our prayer lives? To put it another way, how present are God's promises in our prayers? That is, when we're working through our concerns or a list of people or what's going on in the world around us, how much do we remind our minds and our hearts of what God's actually said about those kinds of situations and what his concerns are, what he's committed to doing in this world. Or another example, uh, you come to the end of a small group study, um, which, incidentally, small groups are there for us to listen to God together around the word, but they're also to help each other pray big part of why we gather in smaller groups. Um, so you get to the, the bit about prayer. Uh, you've just had a Bible study which was full of God's words and God's promises. question here is how much connection is there between what gets prayed and what God just said in the study? An old minister friend of mine, um, he, he used to joke about a very specific noise you get just before you start prayer in a, in a small group. Um, I'll try and recreate it. It goes like this. It's the kind of flop of Bibles being closed. Now, to be honest, you can still be thinking about the Bible even if the pages are closed, but he had a point that, that sometimes it, we, it's like we're moving on to a completely different activity as we pray. Almost like the last half an hour, 45 minutes, however long you go on for, just hasn't happened. But Solomon keeps his Bible open as he prays in Words from 2 Samuel, and then later words from uh, Moses in Leviticus. He's using God's promises to um, to contour and shape his requests. Now, as I find my page in the Bible again, let me ask: there is a there is a kind of um, the irony. There is a kind of puzzle that that can kind of take hold of our minds. I think when we think about praying in what God has promised sometimes we can think, isn't it kind of pointless? After all, if God has already said he's going to do something and he doesn't change his mind, isn't it inevitable that it's going to happen? So why actually would I need to pray? Am I just wasting my breath going through the motions? I remember being totally thrown by that as a student and someone really helped me by saying, Would you prefer to pray to a God who wasn't sovereign? Would that not be even more of a waste of breath? That's helpful. But nevertheless, you can still get yourself kind of tied in this intellectual knot. Why pray to a God who has a plan already mapped up? It can kind of trap you in a kind of prayerless paralysis as you go round and round that paradox. But sometimes it's better just to to give a simple answer, which is to point out that this is the kind of prayer the Bible models to us and teaches to us. This is exactly how David prayed two weeks ago. He said this, Now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you've spoken concerning your servant and his house. Do as you've spoken. That's what David did. Solomon says here, Let your word be confirmed Jesus teaches us to pray this way. We'll have this next week. When we pray, let your kingdom come. Of course God's kingdom is going to come, but he tells us to pray. So even if we don't fully understand the mystery of it, if it's good enough for Jesus and the other kings, it's plenty good enough for me. But I wonder if we, we can say something a bit more, which is that God seems to delight to work through our prayers. This isn't a perfect analogy, but I think I'm starting to understand this a bit more as a father. Um, It's not not uncommon on a kind of typical day off that I'll make a grand promise to the family that we can do something fun, like hang up a picture in the house. We are still unpacking. It's been two years. We're making progress. Uh, So I'll promise to Grace, my daughter, that she can help. We'll hang up this picture together. When you ask me, we can hang up the picture. Now, I don't need her help. It's actually a bit more complicated hanging a picture with a hammer and nails and a three-year-old. It doesn't make things simpler. But nevertheless, I love to include her. I love that process where she'll wake up excited Saturday morning and come running in and ask, can we put up the picture that you promised? It strengthens our relationship when she asks and I respond. If she forgets about it, doesn't ask or is throwing a hissy fit about something else, well, the picture sits there till later. I'll still hang it up, but with none of that joy of mutual involvement. That analogy is far from perfect, obviously. Um, None of us parents are omniscient, omnipotent like God. Um, That's why we sometimes don't keep our promises. Sometimes the picture never goes up. My hand wasn't strong enough to keep my word. But the similarity with our Heavenly Father is that he does delight to work out his plan in and through our prayers. And it's a great joy for us to see the Lord responding to our prayers when we ask in line with his will. How do we know we're in line with his will? Because we stick with what he's promised. And again, that works on the big picture and the kind of everyday level. On the big picture, we should still be praying exactly the prayer that Solomon's praying here. When Jesus Christ arrived on earth in the line of David, that was God fulfilling his plan, his promise to have a king from David's line. But we don't see him ruling on the earth with all authority at the moment. We saw that in Acts. King Jesus reigns from heaven and his rule on the earth is expanding as the message of the gospel goes out. And so we do still pray, Lord Jesus, build your kingdom here. Or as we'll see next week, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But likewise, on the small level, it's right for us to be asking for help the way that God has promised He will help us. And this begins us to, to turn to uh, point three a humble appeal. See, a big part of the temple, uh, its purpose, was to be a place where people can come and ask for help. Just look at verse 30, where we pause the reading. Where Solomon prays, listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. See, this prayer models humble appeal for help. Our third point, it's really worth praying in humble appeal to God. From that point onwards, Solomon's prayer considers some different scenarios where God's people are going to need help in the future. There are seven different ones representing um, many more, I'm sure. Again, God's promises are in view, so lots of this covers things that Moses said would happen in Leviticus. But the point here is, this is people coming to God for help. And notice, it's sinners coming to God for help. I'm just going to read through a few of those examples and so verse 30 the end of the verse Solomon says listen in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear forgive that's the general request and then we go into the specific examples verse 31 if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears an oath before your altar in his house then hear in heaven so if a man sins Verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they've sinned against you. Verse 35, when heaven is sh- shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you. Verse 37, if there's a famine in the land, or what's needed, verse 39, hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive. Or jump on to 46, the last one. If they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin and you're angry with them and give them to an enemy. Well then, verse 50, if they do turn back, then forgive. You see the repeated point? Five out of these seven scenarios are about people needing forgiveness as they ask for help. Sinners coming to God for help. And the wonderful thing is that the whole point of the temple was to make a point of connection between a holy God and an unholy people, an unclean people, a sinful people. And as Solomon prays and and looks forward to generations of praying, he knows that people will need to humbly appeal to God as sinners needing help. The problem is though, and the reason why I didn't call the third point to help sinners through the temple, the problem with the temple was it wasn't actually enough. We heard that even in Psalm 51, if you were here last week, Psalm 51, when David has committed adultery and murder and says, against you Lord I've sinned. He also said, sacrifices and burnt offerings you do not desire. Animal sacrifices, even whatever it was, 120,000 of the sheep, 22,000 oxen, it's not enough. I don't know if you ever get down to pray and there's just something nagging in you that says, I'm not sure I deserve that God would listen to me. Well, outside of Jesus, that's entirely right. Whatever sacrifices, however costly, your service of God is never enough. And actually, the people reading this book of 1 Kings knew that full well, because by the time they were reading, the temple had been burnt to the ground because of the sin of the people and the sin of the kings. Those animals were never enough to cover them. But the temple, God's chosen place of connection, was always pointing forwards to the cross, to the real place of sacrifice and forgiveness the cross of Jesus Christ. And so if you, are, if you are kind of looking in on Christianity, if you want to know the secret of Christian prayer, it's very simple. We realise that the, our only appeal to God is on the basis of Jesus and his death, his sacrifice in our place, his righteousness covering us like a breastplate as we approach a holy God which means we really can appeal for help. I don't know if you're in the habit of memorising any Bible verses. There are a number of wonderful promises. I think it's wise for Christians to memorise specific words that have come out of God's mouth and so he will deliver with his hand. Here's one that was texted to me this week by a friend. The Lord is at hand. This is Philippians 4 6. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is a wonderful promise that in times of need, in times of anxiety, God will answer our prayers to him and give us peace. And the cross of Christ is what can give us confidence that that's not an empty promise. My experience is that's not a one-off prayer that you kind of do once and then you're peaceful (laughs) forevermore. It's something you have to keep coming back to as the anxieties rise. Once again, cast them on the Lord because he cares for us. That's one great promise, another promise I was trying to meditate on actually just before we went away on holiday um, we had, uh, we, we rent a flat out and we thought we had a tenant lined up uh, in the summer and suddenly it fell through just a week before we, we went out of the country um, and we were actually pretty worried and thought, oh we've got to pray, we've got to pray. Uh, I knew this passage was coming up so I thought, oh we've got to pray and think of a promise. Uh, so here's the one we turn to, Matthew 6:31. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The situation, actually, it it was kind of humanly impossible. Uh, The timing of it, we're about to leave. When we come back, there's going to be other things we need to deal with. We're not going to be able to head south to sort it out. But we sat down and prayed and prayed, Lord, you have promised as our Heavenly Father that you know what we need. You haven't promised that you'll fix this this particular problem, but you have promised that you know what we need and that you'll look after us. As we seek your kingdom. But if I'm completely honest, I didn't expect anything to happen. (laughs) Then the next day, actually, I bumped into someone in Edinburgh who was looking for a flat in exactly the area this place was at the right time for the same budget. It was extraordinary. He knows what you need. think sometimes we're too proud to get on our knees. We think that it must be down to my efforts to sort out problems, or if I just think it through enough times, I'll be able to solve it. Sometimes we're too proud to get on our knees to our Heavenly Father. Sometimes we, we have such a low opinion of ourselves. We're so aware of our sin and our shame. We think, well, He'd never listen. But the cross of Christ says He will listen. Again and again through Solomon's prayer, he says, when they turn to this place, for him the temple, for us the cross of Calvary, when they turn to the place where God has said, I'll listen, well then you can have real confidence that he'll answer. Not always the way we hope or the way we expect, but he will answer. Our time is up. If you're not a Christian here tonight, you can be. It's not hard to start. You start by prayer, by admitting that actually I haven't lived God's way in God's world. And his ears are open to a prayer that comes in the name of Jesus. A prayer that's trusting in the cross of Christ. But If you are a Christian here tonight, I hope that this passage is a a shot in the arm for your prayer life. A spur to keep going. I know that 21st century Edinburgh and and the West feels an awful long way from the glory days of God's people and kings. But that is exactly how the readers of this passage felt in exile. So this kind of praying, the glad praise of God that he does keep specific words of promise, the bold requests to follow through on what he said and humble appeal for help as sinners saved at the cross. That's exactly the kind of praying, to pray in the hard days, as well as the good days. Let me close this in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you do with your hand exactly what you've said with your mouth. Thank you that you are not a God who's silent, but a God who has spoken. And you are not a God who's weak, but a God who's powerful to do what you've said. And we pray that would spur us to more and more prayer this week,
0: this month, this year. In Jesus' name, Amen.